I am thankful for the opportunity to preach tonight. Uh, for those of you that may remember when I preached last year, we preached out of Genesis, and we're going to be in Genesis again tonight. I preached about Abraham, and so tonight we're going to be looking at Abraham's grandson, a couple of his grandsons, actually, Jacob and Esau, mostly Jacob. So turn your Bibles to Genesis chapter 32, and uh, I'm going to go ahead and give a little bit of, uh, a little bit of uh, some backstory here. Just to kind of get us caught up, so Genesis 32, um, at God's instruction, Jacob has left Laban in Padan Aram. Um, remember, he had fled from home, basically from the wrath of his brother Esau, who wanted to kill him, um, probably rightfully so. And Jacob has fled. He's gone to live with Laban. And then God has instructed him now to leave and go back to the land of his fathers. And so you remember Jacob kind of, he kind of sneaked out in the middle of the night. And so Laban chased him down. They met and basically the result of the meeting was that they agreed to part ways mostly peacefully. And now Jacob is going back to the land of his fathers. And yet there is one reunion that Jacob is maybe dreading a little bit as he heads back home. And we could speculate, there's maybe even been some speculation. I was doing a little bit of research Different people will have different speculation as to why Jacob would even reach out to Esau and why he wouldn't purposefully steer clear of Edom and Mount Seir if he was that afraid of Esau. But we don't really know. But at least in my mind, it seems as though, you know, here Jacob has left his home because of conflict with him and Esau. He's gone to Padan Aram, and now God is calling him back physically. So maybe at that time of physical restoration, he's wanting to have other types of restoration as well. And so I think that whatever the reasons, I think Jacob wanted to try to mend this rift between himself and Esau. Um, but probably a little nervous about how Esau is going to respond. So we're going to pick up that story here, Genesis 32, and uh, we'll begin reading in verse number 3. And Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau his brother unto the land of Seir, the country of Edom. And he commended them, saying, Thus shall you speak unto my lord Esau. Thy servant Jacob saith thus, I have sojourned with Laban and stayed there until now. And I have oxen and asses, flocks, and men servants and women servants. And I have sent to tell my lord that I may find grace in thy sight. And the messengers returned to Jacob, saying, We came to thy brother Esau, and also he cometh to meet thee, and four hundred men with him. And that's all. <laughs> that's all we know. Then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. No surprise there. And he divided the people that was with him and the flocks and herds and the camels into two bands and said, if Esau come to the one company and smite it, then the other company which is left shall escape. And Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, the Lord which saidst unto me, return unto thy country and to thy kindred and I will deal well with thee. I am not worthy of the least of all the mercies and of all the truth which thou hast showed unto thy servant. For with my staff I passed over this Jordan, and now I am become two bands. Deliver me, I pray thee, from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him, lest he will come and smite me and the mother with the children. And thou saidst, I will surely do thee good, and make thy seed as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. And he lodged there that same night, and took of that which came to his hand a present for Esau, his brother. And we won't go through the details of reading what that present was. Basically, the next several verses are just describing the uh, great lengths of generosity to which Jacob went to try to appease Esau's wrath. Well, I want to preach about this account of this meeting and this reunion between Jacob and Esau and another event that took place um, right at this time as well 
I want to preach tonight a message entitled, A Crippled Con Man. A crippled Con Man, What to Do When You're Out of Tricks. A crippled Con Man, What to Do When You're Out of Tricks. Let's, uh, let's go before the Lord in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this opportunity, Lord, to preach your word. I, I don't take it lightly. And Lord, this truth that I'm hoping to convey tonight, Lord, that I that I've studied and, and prepared to convey from your word tonight, Lord, is something that I want to be so clear about. And I want it to be an encouragement to those that are here, maybe some here that haven't trusted you as Savior, maybe some that have but have, um, are, are faltering in their faith, Lord. And I just want to be an encouragement, Lord, with this, the wonderful truth we learn about you from this passage from the life of Jacob. So I ask that you would just get anything in my flesh out of the way, Lord, and that this truth would become abundantly clear. Bless our time together. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. And you may be seated. So we know Jacob, we know Jacob's character, right? Jacob is the supplanter, that's what his name means, the heel grabber. Jacob, all his life, has made it through one scrape after another using his wits, right? Kind of using his, his bag of tricks. From his very birth, when Esau started to come out first, Jacob grabbed his heel. No, sir, you're not going to get ahead of me that easily, right? From the very beginning. And, you know, I, I remember I had a, I, I say had, I still have a brother that's three years younger than me. And growing up, we had our, our, our tiffs, our moments where we uh, didn't get along. And some of you with siblings probably can attest to something similar. And now I have three boys of my own. And the older two, especially, Parker and Ashton, there are, um, there are moments where oh, both of them want to be first. And both of them want to get ahead of the other. So this, this happens. This is Jacob from his birth, wanting to get ahead, grabbing the heel, trying to trip Esau up to get ahead. Then we know when Esau was weak from hunger, Jacob, uh, Jacob took advantage of him to get the birthright. When Esau was gone hunting for the, to make the savory meat for Isaac, Jacob played a trick, and it was, of course, under the direction of his mother, Rebekah. But he played this trick to get a blessing from him, and it wasn't all Rebekah. You may recall that uh, Jacob had a little bit of an improv line there as well. How did you find it so quickly, my son? Well, the Lord God brought it to me. I don't remember Rebekah telling him that. He kind of just thought on his feet there really quickly. So Jacob was involved in that. And then uh, when Jacob was... When they named the speckled and spotted and ring-straked you know, cattle to be Jacob's hire from Laban, there was some sort of plot, some sort of plan that, that Jacob put in motion to make sure that the stronger ones were the ones that gave birth to the spotted cattle. And, and again, there's maybe could be debate on what, what that was, something scientific, something divine. And uh, definitely God worked through that to bless Jacob. But I think we can see from the passage as well that Jacob had his eyes on the stronger ones. So Jacob all his life has been using these tricks, these schemes to get ahead of people. But another thing that we know about Jacob is that God has been working on Jacob's behalf for his entire life. We know that Jacob has been blessed and favored by God. He was chosen even before his birth. God had foretold that he would, he would rule over his brother. He would be favored over even his older brother. Rebecca and Isaac were told this when they, when they were still in the womb. And then we, we know that he was allowed to end up with the blessing and the birthright. Um, I, d I don't say that God condones necessarily the way that Jacob obtained them, but God could have cut that short any time, and he allowed Jacob to attain it because that was his plan. And then even under Laban, serving for Laban, God blessed him with great wealth. We saw that here in the passage. He said, I came with just my staff, and now I have this company of children and uh, this, this, uh, these cattle, these livestock here. So God has blessed him with great wealth, but not just 
he hasn't just been blessed and favored by God. We see that all through Jacob's life, God has been working to bring Jacob to a place of trust in him. And I think probably the biggest example of this is just the fact that, that God brought Laban into Jacob's life. You think about what happened with, with Laban. Uh, he was a trickster just as intent on getting ahead of Jacob as Jacob had been in getting ahead of Esau. And um, probably, I mean, come on, the greatest con that's ever been pulled off, right? The uh, sinister sister switcheroo, or if you, if you prefer, the malicious morning after the marriage maiden mix-up. The greatest con ever pulled, right? And then Laban changed Jacob's wages ten times, and it's almost like God was saying, Jacob, if you want to live by your wits, there's always somebody that can outwit you. There's always somebody that can be a little smarter than you. You need to trust me, not your own ability. And then now, in our passage here, Esau, who last Jacob knew wanted to kill him, is coming to meet him with 400 men. Jacob doesn't have 400 men. He has his family, he has some servants, he has some, some cattle. And suddenly, the man who's always got a trick up his sleeve is fresh out. Doesn't have any tricks left, nowhere left to run, nowhere left to go. So God's working in Jacob's life to bring him to these places. But we see that Jacob still hasn't learned completely to trust God. There, there's been growth, I would say, even from this prayer that we read, we can see that. But I don't think he's learned completely to trust God. In every situation, all those situations we talked about that God brought into Jacob's path to try to get him to trust, Jacob always had a, a, a move to get out. He always had a response, right? I mean, even with the uh, big trick that Laban pulled on him, right? He still made a deal to get Rachel after that. He schemed to get the stronger cattle. He left Laban in the middle of the night. He kind of didn't say anything and just walked off. Uh, all of these situations God's brought him to, he's, he's schemed and come up with his own ideas for how to get out of them. And even here, yes, he, he prays for God's mercy, and that's good, but he's still kind of scheming a little bit. You see that. He splits into two bands here. Well, if he attacks one, the other one can get away. He sends his scrambles to put this present together and try to send it to Esau to hopefully appease Esau's wrath. You know, God, God has a way of bringing things into our lives that we can't sidestep around and that we can't coast through on talent alone. And um, maybe a job is lost, maybe a loved one or faces a health crisis, or maybe you face a health crisis, and uh, maybe dealing with difficulties in, in your home, something you can't handle on your own. Maybe, as has happened to me many times, you go through a week or a few days where it just seems like everything you do goes wrong, you think you're doing pretty well, and then somebody reminds you, hey, hey, do you have this? Oh, I totally forgot. And then it just seems like everything's going downhill, you feel like you're letting everybody down. You go through these situations that, that reveal that you, you just don't have anything to do. And why does God do that? Why does God bring those into our lives? And what should our response be to those situations? Jacob's response to those situations up to this point has been to try to scheme his way out, to sit through and plan out how he can get around the situation. But this time, we're going to see in this passage, he's going to learn what it was that God wanted from him all along. So skip down with me to verse number 21. Genesis 32, verse 21. So the verses before that, again, are just talking about the present that he put together. Verse 21 says, So went the present over before him, and himself, Jacob, lodged that night in the company. And he rose up that night and took his two wives and his two women servants and his eleven sons and passed over the ford Jabbok. And he took them and sent them over the brook and sent over that he had. And Jacob was left alone, and there wrestled a man with him until the breaking of the day. 
So Jacob's alone here. He sent his family and, and this present and everything ahead of him, all his servants. It's just Jacob here. And you have to know, as he's alone, certainly this situation is on his mind. He, he's, he's anxious about this reunion with Esau and what's going to happen, these 400 men that are coming, pondering what's going to take place. But in that situation, God reveals himself to Jacob. And we're not told in the passage here how this wrestling match started, but we do know that there's this unknown man, or at least unknown to Jacob at first, wrestles with Jacob all night until the breaking of the day, it says. And again, Jacob didn't know who this man was as he, as he engaged with in this wrestling match to begin with, but we do understand that God is choosing to reveal himself in some way to Jacob. And whether you believe this is an Old Testament appearance of Christ or just an angel, a messenger from God, obviously this man is of divine origin. We will see that later in this passage. God is intervening in Jacob's life. But Jacob wrestles with him all night long. And uh, we, we don't see the wrestling match described in detail here either. But can't you just picture it? I mean, here's Jacob, the man that's always got to move, right? He's always got a trick. He won't go down. Every time he gets pinned, he slips out. He finds another move, maybe a trick moves that he's trying. He just, he can't, he can't be pinned. He can't be put down. He keeps his opponent engaged all night until the breaking of the day. And I would say God is using this wrestling match to symbolize Jacob's life up to this point. Every time Jacob, we talked about it a minute ago, every time Jacob has been pinned maybe by Laban, he always managed to scheme his way out, right? But God's about to reveal to Jacob that what Jacob thought was scheming his way around Laban was actually grappling with God. You know, those situations that God brings you to in your life, the ones that bring you to that place of desperation where you don't know what to do, where you're scrambling to come up with answers, how do you view those situations? Do you just chalk it up to, well, just dumb luck? That's just, that's just, just chance, I guess. Do you just ignore it? Do you grow bitter maybe that you were the one that just so happened to, have that, to lose that job? Or maybe uh, that you were the one, why did it have to be your family that had to be the one that had that illness? And uh, please listen closely. I, I want to be clear about this. I am not saying at all that you should view a spouse's or a child's illness as nothing more than a divine telegram from God. I don't think God is some monster that gets glee from using cancer or abuse or poverty to try to whack you on the head to give you a message. That's, that's, not, that's not at all what I am saying. But what I, you know, and I, and I don't even believe that God was in favor of all that Laban had done to Jacob, the cheating and the lying. But... Uh, we know that even though we go through situations in our life that ultimately are directly the result of living in a sin-cursed world, we still, if we are looking, can see the hand of God in those situations wanting to draw us to Him. And we commit a grave error, the same error that Jacob committed, if we neglect to search for God's loving hand in those situations and simply just look for a scheme to get out of it. So what happens next? Look at uh, verse 25 here. And when he saw that he prevailed not against him, this was the man Jacob's wrestling with, he touched the hollow of his thigh, and the hollow of Jacob's thigh was out of joint as he wrestled with him. And he said, let me go, Jacob says, for the day break, or no, the man says, let me go, for the day breaketh. Jacob said, I will not let thee go except thou bless me. And he said unto him, what is thy name? And he said, Jacob. And he said, thy name shall be called no more Jacob, but Israel. For as a prince hast thou power with God and with men, and hast prevailed. And Jacob asked him and said, tell me, I pray thee thy name. And he said, Wherefore is it that thou dost ask after my name? And he blessed him there. And Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, for I have seen God face to face. Apparently he now realizes who it was he was dealing with. And my life is preserved. 
And as he passed over Penuel, the sun rose upon him, and he halted upon his thigh. Therefore the children of Israel eat not of the sinew which shrank, which is upon the hollow of the thigh unto this day, because he touched the hollow of Jacob's thigh in the sinew that shrank. What we see in this wrestling match here is that God changes Jacob's outlook with one touch. After an entire night of being locked head to head, this stranger reaches down and simply just touches Jacob on the leg. And suddenly Jacob's out of joint. You can just picture him suddenly losing strength in that leg. After an entire night, no, an entire life of thinking he could slip out of anything, all it took was just one touch from God's finger to knock him out. So you've you got to get the picture here. Here's the supplanter, the trickster, the con man, the heel grabber. God's got him by the leg now. And he's got nowhere to go. Jacob in this situation is forced to see who he really is, admit who he really is, and what he's been guilty of. What's your name? Jacob, the supplanter, the heel grabber, the trickster. You can just almost picture Jacob hanging his head in shame as he says these words. But in this position of absolute humility, Jacob receives victory. The man says to him, he says, no, your, your name isn't Jacob anymore. Now it's Israel. Israel comes from the Hebrew word Sarah, meaning to prevail or to have power. And El, which is we know the name of God Almighty, he will have power like God. He will prevail like God. Now, you've got to get this picture of what's going on, the mental picture of what's taking place to really understand the full effect of these words. Jacob is not on top of this man with all of his strength pinning him to the ground saying, you better bless me, I've got you cornered. On the contrary, Jacob's probably on the ground holding this leg that's now out of joint, just grasping desperately with his other hand maybe to this man. Just, he won't let go. And in that situation, he's told, congratulations, you're the winner, you've prevailed. You have power like God. It's backwards from what we would normally think, right? I don't know about you, but if I walk up on a scene where two men are fighting and then suddenly one grabs his hip and goes down like this and is pleading for mercy, I'm not thinking, boy, that guy's the winner. But that guy is a really great, really great fighter. But that's how different God's way is from ours. As we just heard a minute ago, his way is perfect. You remember the quote from the Jim Berg book, The Low Man Wins? Pastor talks about that all the time. Well, Jacob is finding that out here. He never won. He never, he never won in life when he was trying to get the upper hand. He only won when he fell down in humility. You can picture God saying, Jacob, you've been a schemer your whole life. You thought you didn't need me. Now you finally come to a place where you have no more tricks. You're fresh out of tricks. You're weak, you're crippled, you're cornered, and you're completely at my mercy. Yet in that position, what did he do? He simply fell on the mercy of God called out to him for this blessing, called out to the one with all power. When you were totally at my mercy, you fell on my mercy in faith that I would hear and bless. And everyone who humbly recognizes he has no option but to fall on God's mercy and then in faith does fall on God's mercy will always find that God will catch him. God will lift him up. God will give him grace and God will give him power, his power from on high. The New Testament writers would say it this way, God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace to the humble. Jacob's been humbled, and it's in that position he receives the power he's been trying to scheme for his entire life. Jacob got it, right? We saw that in verse 30. I have seen God face to face, and my life is preserved. He realized that he'd been freely shown mercy by God, a God who could have with one touch knocked him out. When he'd run out of tricks on his own, he simply fell on God's mercy. Aren't we so tempted to think that we're doing so well 
in life. We don't, we wouldn't say it out loud, but we don't, I don't know that I really need God. I don't know that I, you know, I'm doing fine. I don't know if I need to read my Bible or pray today. I don't know if I need to really spend a lot of time studying for this Sunday school lesson. I've been doing this for a long time. I've been preaching for a long time, teaching for a long time, serving on a bus for a long time, been uh, involved in the choir for a long time, been parenting for a long time, spousing for a long time, whatever the word is there. been doing this for years now. I know all the tricks of the trade. But all the while, we neglect to realize it is only of the Lord's grace and mercy that we have made it thus far. We neglect to understand it was not our wits that helped us, but the goodness, mercy, and grace of an infinitely loving God who at any moment could have reached down and tapped, we would have been history. Like Jacob, you will never achieve lasting victory through your own efforts. It's never going to happen. You're going to face situations where you're overwhelmed, where you don't know what to do. And when you recognize you're completely at the mercy of God, you've got nowhere to run, nowhere to hide, no options, nothing to say, nothing to do. When you find yourself completely at the mercy of God, fall on his mercy. And he will catch you and lift you up every single time. This is what happens in salvation, right? A sinner realizes he has no good works, no charm of his own, no tricks or rituals or rites he can do. Nothing to hide him from the wrath and judgment of a holy God. He simply falls in faith on the mercy and grace of the one who gave his life for him and promises that he will save all who come to him, whosoever will. And God grants him mercy, grace, and salvation and that same resurrection power of Jesus Christ to live inside of him. But Christians, it's not just for salvation. God intends for you to live every day of your life coming before his throne boldly to ask for grace and mercy, to make it through the day, to live a holy life, to serve him, to serve others, to resist the devil, to mortify the flesh. And every time you come before him, you'll find that his grace, his power will always be there, not your own. When all you have left is God's mercy, and what else do we have, honestly? Throw yourself on it, and you'll find he'll be there to catch you and lift you up every single time. Okay, Brother Kevin, I, I understand. When I'm faced with a really big problem that's out of my control and I have no other options left, then I turn to God. No, no, you're not getting it. You're still thinking like Jacob, not like Israel. If you're handling all the small stuff, but you only turn to God when it's a really big problem, you've missed the point completely. That's, that's, that was Jacob's problem. He was his whole life thinking he had everything under control. Clever little plan here, sneaky scheme here, and bingo, everything turns out the way that it's supposed to. God brought him, listen to this, God brought him to this place not to show him that sometimes he would face problems he couldn't handle, but that at any time God could have reached down and touched him and it all would have been over. And I think maybe perhaps some of us need to tonight repent of some wrong thinking. Maybe we need to ask forgiveness for thinking we had it under control when anything we've ever accomplished has only been by God's mercy and grace. His long suffering. It's only by the, it is only by the mercy of God that you just took a breath, let alone taught a Sunday school class, worked a bus, wrote, raised a family, stayed faithful to your spouse. You, we can't even breathe. We can't even take a step without God. Jacob learned that literally. Yet we think that we can do all of these things in our own power. How far are you going to go before God brings you to your pineal? No, God, God's far too loving to let you keep going on thinking that you're, you're doing it on your own. He's, he's going to use things in your life to draw you to trust in him. Tonight, he's given you an example here in the word of God. He's, he's given you an altar and an opportunity tonight to turn to him in faith and stop trying to scheme your way through life. Well, are you going to take that opportunity? 
And, and there may even be one here tonight that has never placed their trust in Christ for salvation because you think that you can work your way into God's good favor on your own. I'm, I think I'm good enough. I, I'll be all right. I'll, you have to admit that you've got nothing to offer him, that you're completely at his mercy, but come to him for that mercy, the mercy that sent his son to die in your place. Well, what's the result here? We see the wrestling match. What happens when he meets up with, with Esau? I want you to see this, because these stories are connected. I really believe they are. Look at, verse, uh, look at chapter 33. We're going to read several verses here. First part of this chapter. And Jacob lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, Esau came, and with him 400 men. And he divided the children unto Leah and unto Rachel and unto the two handmaids. He put the handmaids and their children foremost, and Leah and her children after, and Rachel and Joseph hindermost. And he passed over before them and bowed himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. And Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him, and they wept. And he lifted up his eyes and saw the women and the children and said, Who are those with thee? And he said, The children which God hath graciously given thy servant. Then the handmaidens came near, they and their children, and they bowed themselves. Leah also with her children came near and bowed themselves. And after came Joseph near and Rachel, and they bowed themselves. And he, Esau, said, What meanest thou by all this drove which I met, this present? And he said, They are to find grace in the sight of my Lord. And Esau said, I, I have enough, my brother. Keep that thou hast unto thyself. And Jacob said, Nay, I, I pray thee, if now I have found grace in thy sight, then receive my present at my hand. For therefore I have seen thy face as though I had seen the face of God. Sound familiar? And thou wast pleased with me. Take, I pray thee, my blessing that is brought to thee, because God hath dealt graciously with me, and because I have enough. And he urged him, and he took it. I really think that Esau in these two chapters here represents Jacob's relationship with God. In chapter 32, Jacob finds himself completely at Esau's mercy. He's coming to meet you, Jacob. Somebody that said he was, swore he was going to kill you last time. He's completely at Esau's mercy. And then in chapter 33, he finds that Esau shows him mercy and favor when he asks for it. But then sandwiched right in between those two chapters, we have this wrestling match situation where Jacob found himself at the mercy of God and fell on God's mercy and received mercy freely from God as well. So there's, it's almost like there's this physical outward illustration of what is taking place spiritually at, that, uh, at the brook there, at the wrestling match. And, and you have to know that Jacob is, is thinking about Peniel when this takes place. No, as he, as he hobbles up to Jacob, as, to Esau on that bad leg, <laughs> you know he's thinking about what happened last night, about being freely shown favor by God. And, and he even says... Uh, pointed out a minute ago in verse 10 to Esau, I have seen thy face as though I had seen the face of God and thou wast pleased. Verse 30 of the previous chapter said, I have seen God face to face and my life is preserved. Very similar language there. In both cases, Jacob found himself face to face with someone who could have wiped him out and had every right to do so. And he had nowhere to run. And in both cases, when he pleaded for mercy, he freely received it. Look at this. This is, this is great. What was meant to be a present to appease Esau's wrath became an offering of gratitude. Esau makes it clear in verse number 9 that the present is not what changed his mind. He said, I don't need this. I've got, I've got plenty. I, you, go ahead and keep it, Jacob. But Jacob says, no, no, go ahead and take it. But now his reason isn't, I want you to take it because I, I think you're still mad at me. His reason isn't, I, I want you to take it because I'm trying to work my way into your good favor. His reason now is he's giving it as a token of acknowledgement of the grace he's been shown by God and by Esau. You know, we, we think that so many times so that we can somehow 
earn God's favor, appease his wrath, his judgment, his holiness with our puny little offerings, our vows, our deals that we make. But in the end, God just wants us to fall before him in humility, recognizing we have nothing to offer. David in Psalm 51 described it this way after he's just committed adultery and murder. He's committed adultery and murder. And he says, thou desirest not sacrifice, else would I give it. Thou delightest not in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, thou wilt not despise. God's not looking for you to do something to earn his acceptance. He offers it freely to those who are humble enough to admit that they desperately need it. But oh, when we receive that unlimited, measureless favor of God, what sacrifices of love and thanksgiving it should cause us to offer in return. You you recall the story of Simon the Pharisee? and the harlot that was washing Jesus' feet in Luke 7. Simon the Pharisee in his self-righteousness sat in amazement at this sinful woman who was weeping, bawling, washing Jesus' feet. She knew she was guilty and vile, but she was loved by Jesus. And her sins were forgiven. She loved Jesus so much that she wanted to wash his feet. But Simon, the self-righteous Pharisee, thought he was pretty good. He couldn't even be bothered to anoint Jesus' head with oil. Couldn't be bothered to give him the customary kiss of greeting. You know, have you ever looked at some other Christians maybe and wonder, how, how could they do something, maybe a task that they do in service and just something that is not maybe the most pleasant? How could they go through that situation? How could they do that task that's so menial, so humbling, so low, you know, cleaning the toilets or, or whatever it might be, something like that? How could, how could they be, and how could they do that and have a smile, a real genuine smile? Like they, they look like they actually enjoy doing that. How is that? Well, maybe it's because they realize, like this woman, how much mercy and love they've been shown, and maybe we sit here thinking that we deserve what we got. The Christian life of service is not one where we satisfy God's whims just to keep from getting zapped. That's not how it works. It's where we recognize we've already been shown freely absolute mercy, love, and forgiveness, and in return, we offer our lives out of gratitude, just like Jacob did. Esau didn't need Jacob's present. He said, I don't need this. God doesn't need your offering that you bring. We offer it not because, not because God demands bring me an offering or else, but because when we deserve the or else, God gave us mercy. That's why we offer things to him. So I, I think there's a lesson for us here tonight. If, if you haven't yet accepted that love and, and forgiveness offered on Calvary, stop rejecting and accept him. Come before him and humbly admit that you need him. If you are a Christian, but you think you've got it all under control, that you're doing pretty, pretty good, stop trusting in your own power and start looking for the hand of God in your life. And I will tell you, the busier, from my experience in my own life, I can tell you, the busier and noisier your life is, the harder it's going to be to see God's hand. You fill your life up with things, stuff, entertainment, even good projects maybe, but, but you neglect to take time apart with the Bible, with prayer, with meditation and, and reflection, you neglect to do that, it's going to be hard to see God's hand working in your life. And you're going to be start, starting to think that carnal way. Well, I've got to do this, and here's my plan, and here's how I can get ahead in this situation. But if we spend time apart with him, it, it helps to confirm those things that we really already know to be true, biblically. That any good thing at all in our life is only by the amazing mercy and goodness of God. Maybe you're a Christian who's frustrated by feeling like you always have to try to appease God or satisfy Him or earn His acceptance, thinking you don't measure up, thinking you're a failure because you can't seem to do enough. But you've got it exactly backwards. You're always completely at the mercy of God. But He loves you. You're His child. 
There's nothing you could do to ever make him love you less. He loves you the same way he loves his only begotten son, Jesus Christ. That's amazing to me. Stop worrying about whether or not he's accepted you and start living confident that he has accepted you in Christ and serve him because of it. Motivated by grace and love, not by worry or trying to appease him through your own self-effort. Well, but doesn't thinking like that lead to loose living and taking advantage of God's grace? Well, let's do a little uh, thought experiment here, shall we? I want you to think of one person, one person on this earth, and then probably you can think of many, but think of one person on this earth who you know loves you no matter what. Maybe a spouse, maybe a parent, grandparent, maybe a child, maybe a really close dear friend. When you think about that person's unwavering love for you, even when you might hurt and disappoint them, they continue to love you faithfully. When you think about that, does it make you want to disappoint them more and hurt them more? No, of course not. It makes you want to do things for them in return. It makes you want to love them. And that's just human love. You know, that pales, that person, the love that that person has for you pales in comparison to the eternal, unconditional love that God the Father has for you. And so if the, if the love of a spouse or a child can motivate you to love that way in return, how, what kind of love do you think God's perfect love could stir up in us? 1 John 4.19, we love him because he first loved us. I love that verse. So simple, but so, so it's so true. We don't, we don't love him to get him to love us. We love him because... Thousands of years ago, he loved us on a cross, and there's nothing that we could do to ever finish paying that off. So whether you're, you're a believer who needs to be reminded of uh, your need to, to trust in God, to humbly seek his face and trust in his mercy and his power, or maybe an unbeliever who hasn't placed your faith in Jesus Christ, hasn't come to that humble admission of your need for Christ, when you realize that you are at the mercy of God, and we always are, fall on his mercy, call on him, and he will always, always lift you up. Amen. Let's bow our heads for prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for this story about the patriarch Jacob and just how you reveal to us that you are, you are longing for us to simply admit that we need you, to fall before you humbly, and uh, to cry out for your mercy, to cry out for your grace. And we know that it will be sufficient for us, Lord. And so I ask that, Lord, that folks um, would be touched by this tonight, maybe those that haven't trusted you for salvation or those that have and that just need a reminder, Lord, that the only good in their life is from your grace and mercy, and they constantly need it, Lord, to just continue to trust in that power and not their own, Lord. And just I ask that you would work, your spirit would work during this time. Thank you for your word. Thank you for allowing me to, to preach it. And I ask that you bless this time. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.